Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. (laughs) Because politics needed a (laughs) rebrand. All right, guys. Well, welcome back to Girl in the Gov, the podcast. We're we're back at it again, as as the greats would say. You know, just What's doing new? the damn thing. What you know. Well, new? I I am in Maine, which wild, definitely wild. My family, aka my parents, are moving, and I'm trying to help them find a house. And they didn't even last a week in Maine. Not a week. They have decided after literally two days. They're like. No, we're gonna move back to Vermont, and I will be sitting here Stop. laughing at them for eternity. I was like, we we did this once, and now now we're going back. So now we um are in Maine for a few days, but I love my Airbnb. So go me, I picked well. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I mean, you. it Those looks cute. Sam has everywhere. like a full bustling fire behind her. It's very vibey over there. Vibey, it's so cozy. But... I gotta say, like. I love this because it's like a safe fire. And given that my mom almost accidentally set her house on fire once trying to make a fire. And I mean, accidentally, I mean, she actually did because she just like, she thought she was doing it right. Like literally I never had a play date with that chick again. I had like a girl over a play date. I was like probably four. This girl named Bridget, wherever you are, Bridget, don't remember what your last name is. Hope you're doing well. And my mom was like, oh, we'll get like, it's cozy winter day. I'll make like a fire and like maybe make s'mores like something like that. And she thought the flue was closed. So she thought she was opening it, but she was really closing it. So then she lit a fire with the flue freaking closed and the house went on fire, not surprisingly. And then the whole fire came. And yeah, like I said, I never had a play date with that girl again, but it's fine. No, her parents was like, um, this girl is blacklisted from seeing my daughter. Literally. And oh since God. then, my mom has That's obviously wild. not been allowed to make any attempts, and she does not want to either. So it's really it's a mutually beneficial moment. Just, okay. Okay. But yeah, yeah. So that's well, where I'm at. We have an amazing show today. I'm super we excited do. about it. And before we get into everything, there was like a f- interesting, you know, little story. It's not necessarily a top story moment, but it's definitely interesting. You know, it's mm. interesting. And mm-hmm. that's just this weirdly political backlash coming at Alec Baldwin after the really tragic shooting slash accidental shooting. I don't even know what to call it because of how bizarre yeah. and crazy and tragic it is. But for those who don't know, I'm sure you do by now, Alec Baldwin basically accidentally killed somebody on a movie set with a gun prop and it's just super tragic and injured another person. But since then, weirdly enough, the political right has just been having a heyday with this, with this story and with just destroying Alec Baldwin for it, which is like, that definitely crosses the line. Like when there's 
a literal person who died, you're really going to make like political jokes about it. I just, it's yeah, weird. not only political like, jo- jokes, but literal political merch, the, the yeah. right and Republicans and especially the, the Trump camp are literally monetizing this story and this death. It's insane. Well, I think it makes sense because like Alec Baldwin is like on the left of things has definitely come out against that camp. So like him being sort of a subject of their jokes, critique, et cetera, et cetera. Like it does make sense. That's not surprising. But what's surprising is what you go after. Well, also too, like the woman that tragically died from this, which I like, I wonder what, what her family thinks of this to be perfectly honest, because you've got like what Maddie was saying, Donald Trump Jr. is like literally launched merch about this. And it's like someone died. Like what I wonder if her family can sue and be like, even if like, even if they're Republican, even if these are their politicians, I don't think I would be like happy that all of a sudden these like political yada yadas are making merch off of my family member's death. Or just like, I don't I know. Mean, like in it's shocking a, I, that even their base would be, you know, entertained by this. Like this is so cruel. Again, someone died and Donald Trump Jr. is selling t-shirts on his website that say, quote, guns don't kill people. Alec Baldwin kills people. And that's what he is selling on his website, which is fucking insane and cruel and just disgusting. I hate him. (laughs) I hate him. I hate him. It's so tacky. And he like literally said on his IG, like, let's all watch Alec Baldwin blame the gun. And like with the captions, only a matter of time. And like that look when an anti-gun nut kills more people with a gun than your extensive firearm collection ever has. Like, just like, it shouldn't kill anyone. No one should be in this position. There's so many, like- Yeah, I just think like, they're relating this like incident with anything political. Like, first of all, Alec Baldwin, yeah, he like was Donald Trump on SNL. He's vocal politically. But what the hell does this tragic like movie set accidental death have to do with politics? Like nobody asked- what you think it opens up the conversation to talk about regulation on movie sets and like things of and also like workers rights and things of that nature and like deeper gun safety like trainings that are required per anyone handling them like there are political ties to this like I get that but their tact that they're taking is absolutely like mind-blowingly like out to no, lunch. they're not taking it from like a policy angle no, at all. They're just no. using it to like literally make money and to make jokes. And Candace Owens said literally not one single thing that Alec Baldwin has said about Donald Trump and his supporters is going to age well. What does this have to do with what Alec Baldwin has ever said about Donald Trump and his opinions on Donald Trump? Like, it's just, I can't. Anything to make a dollar, you know? Anything, anything, anything to make a freaking dollar. Well, well speaking of making that's a dollar, just like speaking of making a dollar. Yes. <laughs> Let's um, talk about it. Honestly, more spending dollars. We have some awesome merch coming out. We actually are pushing our launch to next week. So, November 3rd, we will have everything up and ready for you guys. We're just making a few last minute adjustments, make sure everything is ready to rumble, to roll, to wear, to be like, oh my God, I look freaking fab. And obviously, when when this moment happens, this moment of glory, when obviously a girl in the gov merch item ends up in your snail mail box, uh, obviously take some pics and tag us and yeah. do the damn thing. Yeah. So 
put that, change your um, calendar, <laughs> change your calendar invite slash event, switch it on over to the next week and you can be ordering your merch then. But Ooh, and one little flag on that too is that this merch run is limited edition. So it's only going to be available mm-hmm. for 21 days, 21 days only. So FYI, like don't walk, like run, like this is going to be like quick. It's going to be fire. It's going to be, you know, speedy delight. So just a little FYI. Yes. Yeah. So you're going to want to be on top of it. So definitely, you know, put that in the calendar, like we said, but that is the little housekeeping moment for the day. And we will get right into talking about our guest and introducing her because she is freaking incredible. Well, Maddie is like, right. Because she's epic. She's incredible. And I like literally want her to be my mom. And it's just like, and my politician, like it just, she was freaking awesome and super inspirational and cool. So we'll introduce her. We'll give you like the tea. Like who is, who's this mysterious person we're talking about? It's Melanie DeRigo and she is not only an activist and organizer, but she's also the Democrat candidate for Congress in New York's district three. So if you're a New Yorker, this one might be close to your heart. If you're not, it's still going to be a really interesting conversation. So without further ado, let's get into it. Here is Melanie. Well, we are super excited to have you on the show. As a fellow New Yorker, I'm especially excited because I'm like, okay, like we need to talk to every amazing candidate out there, get the full scoop, why they're running, who they are, all that. And you are running for a particularly close district to myself. Would you mind giving us the scoop of where you're running, what district that I'm like alluding to and, you know, sort of like your platform, you know, what, what are you running on? Absolutely. Well, firstly, I would love to tell your audience, my name is Melanie DeRigo and I'm running in New York's third district. It is a very unique district in that it spans three counties, which is pretty unusual for congressional districts. So it's part of New York City and part of Long Island. Right now, as it stands, the district comprises northwestern Suffolk County, northern and mid Nassau County and northeastern Queens. Of course, we are in a process of redistricting, which means right now state houses across the country are determined and drawing up new election districts. New York, unfortunately, lost a congressional seat, which means all of them are going to grow a little bit larger. You know, it remains to be seen what our district will look like. We don't think it will change too much other than maybe push further into Queens, which, you know, we're really excited about. If I win this seat, which I fully intend to do, Mm. I will be the first woman ever to represent the third district, which... I know. And I, I know, and I feel um, excited to be part of that history, but also I feel filled with rage that I have to say those words. I can't wait until we never have to say those words again. Right. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I'm running on a very, you know, what is known as a progressive platform. I'm I'm an organizer. I've been organizing for, you know, the last six or so years around policies like Medicare for all. I believe healthcare is a human right and everybody should uh, be able to not just 
just access it, but be able to actually use it and, and not have to worry about cost. I'm a pro-environmental candidate, a Green New Deal candidate, environmental justice, social justice, fighting for reproductive rights, fighting for immigrant rights. I'm also a longtime member of Moms Demand Action. So common sense gun safety laws are really important to me, you know, anti-war candidate, pro-peace candidate. So, you know, we're really prioritizing people above corporations. And that's actually one of the cornerstones of my campaign. I actually wrote a policy last year called the Paid By Act, Politician Accountability Information Disclosures Benefiting You, which is a mouthful. Wow. Um, okay. But essentially, if you think of, we've all, we all know the idea of uh, NASCAR, right? And they have all their sponsorships on their cars, right? So we mm. know who's paying for them. Unfortunately, politics has become quite similar. And what we do see is large super PACs and dark money groups and corporate groups donating lots of money to influence votes. And in some cases, writing legislation for politicians and asking them to pass it. And they're, you know, across the board on pretty much every issue you can think of, this is happening. And frankly, we cannot allow this to happen anymore. We are at a, you know, a really crucial, precarious moment in our country's history, and we need to get it back on track. And the way we do that is by prioritizing people first. So I'm a candidate that does not accept any corporate money. We are from the grassroots, by the grassroots, fighting for the grassroots. Yes, we need more of you. That all sounds so amazing. Can you tell us a little bit about the third district and really what the demographics are like? What are the kind of the biggest issues that are top of mind for voters? Yeah, there? absolutely. Absolutely. So the third district is interesting in that it is one of the wealthiest districts in the country. And it's also one of the has that one of the highest rates of inequality of any district. They're both in it's like top five for both in the wow. country. Right, right. So, you know, we have just seen exploding inequality as we have across the country, but particularly here in this district. You know, we have a range of age demographics. We are a predominantly white district. It's a little over 70% white. With We're very excited. We have growing populations of the Asian community, Hispanic communities, Muslim communities. We have, you know, I feel like our diversity is is growing and there's definitely an awareness to try to create more diverse spaces so you know we're excited and encouraged about that it's amazing i still can't oh, believe that there's three counties involved in oh yeah Shocking. yeah like so that it's beyond me it's it's interesting because we do have some more uh, urban-like areas of the county. We also have some small farms in the county. So it's very, very interesting. A lot of it is suburb-like, but you know, it allows us to speak to uh, many different populations. But in a way, I find it exciting because issues that you know we might think of as rural issues really do impact urban and suburban areas as well. So it's finding that intersection and those common threads that unite us. And, and you know, I think we've been able to do that quite successfully through a lot of education in our campaign. That is amazing. amazing. And also like so cool to like think about like, okay, like within the same district, like you've got rural communities in a sense, you have like urban, you have to be able to solve problems for everyone in between and kind of forces like the hand to actually like do that. And mm -hmm. I know, you know, one group that we will be really talking about is workers and workers rights and everything sort of related to that. Can you give us a little bit of a picture as to like what the landscape from a job perspective looks like in your district? You know, what is like the the typical or not even the typical, but like what are like industries. The industries that you know really lead? 
Yeah. So we, we have, we are, we're a district that is quite close to Manhattan. So, you know, we have definitely a large population that commutes or used to commute to the city pre-pandemic. So you, for a variety of industries, you know, fine corporate America uh, and a variety of um, industries, but we also have a lot of hospital workers. We have a lot of teachers. We have a lot of police officers. You know, it, it really is a very broad mix of, you know, upper middle class, middle class, and I would say low income individuals who are you know, really struggling. Something else I didn't mention in terms of demographics, we have a very large undocumented population on, on this in this particular district and on Long Island in general. So, you know, that's of grave concern. You know, we're constantly fighting for rights for our neighbors and our friends to make sure that, you know, folks that we've known pretty much, you know, our entire lives can get um, the same rights as us. And that's, that's, that's a factor here. And as we talk about workers' rights, I think that's important to mention because as probably many of your listeners no, undocumented people were very vulnerable during, I mean, vulnerable always, but particularly vulnerable during the pandemic when very little resources were available. Thankfully, New York State, through a lot of organizing efforts, did finally put some money into an excluded workers fund, which they're able to access now, but it's, it's not enough. And we need to make sure we're protecting undocumented people as well. Mm-hmm, totally. In a democracy, we all have citizen power. We just need to know how to use it. Yet, if you feel fed up or confused by the U.S. government, you're not alone. Most voters feel powerless, especially when lobbyists and special interest groups seem to control the levers of government more so than the people. But your voice and your vote matter. When you understand how the government actually works, you can have a surprising amount of influence. Citizen Power with Natalia Ramos and Ben Sheehan is a 10-day course, signed for free, here, aka in that link in our bio, that offers the civics education you missed or you may have forgotten from high school. This is not just about facts and dates. It's about giving you back your power as a citizen to move forward the issues you really care about. By taking this course, you'll learn what should be taught in civics class, but isn't, your rights and powers as a citizen, how you can have the most influence over your elected representatives, real actionable steps you can take to influence policy, and the confidence and conviction to contribute to the future of democracy. You are the CEO of your elected officials, and it's time to make sure your voice is heard. So head to the link in our episode description to start your amazing civics class today. Get the first five days free. Again, head to that link in our episode description and get five days free. All right, guys, do you need stress relief, sleep support, recovery, mood boosters, or even some new incredible skincare? Prima has amazing, doctor-formulated, clinically validated, and high-performance CBD products for the skin, the body, and the mind, you guys, and it comes in so many forms. So we have CBD supplements to bath bombs, body lotions, skincare. I've gotten some serious relief from stress, hangovers, anxiety, even PMS with this stuff, so give it a shot. Prima has recently been selected as one of Sephora's top 10 brands that meet their rigorous clean standards by priding themselves on sustainable farming practices, being carbon neutral, 100% clean with strict safety standards, which is all so, so important to us. So there's also some big news because Prima has launched an app that offers self-care in the palm of your hands and allows you to shop with ease, access exclusive content, and much more. So lucky for us, you can enjoy the relief of the best CBD products out there because Prima is offering our listeners an exclusive, limited time, 20% off offer with the code GIRLGOV. So head to Prima.co, 
feel better every day. Well, that's like a perfect segue into our really topic for the day, but to start it off with our I have a stupid question segment, we want to ask the first question, which is what are workers' rights? Yeah, well, I mean, so I think when we think of workers' rights, right, we think of healthy and safe workplaces, we think of the right to organize together and form unions, but tangibly, what does it look like? It could look like a fair wage, a living wage where, you know, we've been fighting for minimum wage. That's been, or, you know, I, I would say, I guess two months ago, it was very topical and it was in the news all the time. Mm -hmm. We were hearing a lot about that. Could look like paid paid family leave, uh, paid sick leave, you know, all types of workers' protections. Totally. Okay. So like when we think of also workers' rights, I feel like the common thing that like is thrown in with it is bargaining rights. And then I sit there mm -hmm. and scratch my head. I'm like, I definitely learned about this sometime between elementary and middle school. Like I remember mm -hmm. that moment, but I don't remember like the actual definition. What does that actually mean? And like, what is the difference between, if there is any, between bargaining rights and collective bargaining? Yeah. So I mean, bargaining rights in its like, you know, most basic definition, it just means the ability to organize and like to, to pool employees together. And well, <laughs> you know, it's a little bit intuitive to bargain for one's rights, right? So it could mean we're coming, you know, we're, we're forming a, like a coalition together to advocate for certain rights, whether it's shorter hours or, you know, overtime pay or, you know, over the variety of workers' rights that, that we were speaking about a moment ago. I think, you know, collective bargaining, we think about that as sort of the next step, the bigger level or, you know, the next level of um, what that looks like. Typically, it means we're selecting a representative to, you know, bargain, if you will, with the employer to represent a greater employee base for workers' rights, like, you know, what we mentioned before, you know, whether it's better health care or, you know, a living wage or, you know, shorter hours, it, all, all of the gamut of workers' rights. Mm -hmm. And is there a difference between a labor union and a trade union? What are those things? What is the differences? Yeah, they're, so trade unions and labor unions are essentially the same thing. You know, they just, they could be classified a little bit differently. So sometimes, you know, a trade could be something like, I don't know, like a steel workers type union, you know, a, a, a trade, but ultimately they're, they're kind of used interchangeably. Okay. Okay, it makes sense. I was always like, huh, like, is there, is there a difference? Like, is it kind yeah, of the same thing? Like, I kind of like feel like by like the definition or like the definition of the words being like labor and trade, I'm like, okay, I kind of see it. But then like, I was wondering like, okay, is there like a deep dive? But like, no. They're kind of used interchangeably, you know, depending on how one organization sort of self-selects, but it's, it's essentially the same thing. It's, you know, it's an, or an organization, a union that is, you know, representing a trade or representing, you know, a, a piece of the labor force or, you know, but it, they're usually used interchangeably, trade and labor unions. Okay, cool. Gotcha. To bake it down like a little bit, like I probably should have like asked this in a different order. But okay. what even are unions in the first place? Like, how are they formed? Yes. So, well, I mean, this, this, I'll, I'll bake it down. Like, I know you had said to try to keep it easily digestible. So a union historically has given, I mean, we, I think we owe unions essentially all of our workers' rights that yeah. we have today, you know, and, and we've got a long way to go. 
But things mm-hmm. could certainly, you know, be worse. Certainly in the 20s and 30s, they were. But unions are are in place to ensure worker safety, to ensure that we're paid a fair wage, you know, and how they form together. Typically, there's, there's a variety of organizational tactics. But for example, it could be uh, one worker says to another worker, you know, the, you know, we're, we're maybe these are dangerous working conditions. You know, maybe they're forcing us to work 10 hour shifts. We need to, you know, we, we need to push back around this. So a union can be formed with actually two or more people, which is really interesting, right? Because I think we think of them as, yeah. you know, large entities, which they typically are, but you can form a union with two or more. There's a voting process that has to take place. And, you know, and I'm not up on all of the you know procedural elements but essentially you know there there's a process to follow and there's a vote and once you have majority support from the employees technically you should be able to form a union now we do know unfortunately that our our the US law is it's it's not where it should be and unfortunately it gives a lot more power to employers and corporations who do unfortunately employ a lot of union busting tactics there's even something what is it called it's there is a consultant that works with corporations to teach corporations how to union bust which is it just feels so anti-American, right? So yeah, it's kind of terrible. But I think, you know, at its at its core, essentially what it is, is just folks coming together and wanting stronger protections or, you know, a more fa- a fairer working environment. And they work together, they organize, and then they negotiate with their employer for more rights. Okay, what I love about this is because it can be two or more people, Maddie and I can form our own union, and then we can just argue with ourselves being our own employer. I feel like this is going to be excellent. We're probably going to hire ourselves and fire ourselves like 10 times, but this is... Seems efficient. It seems great. It seems great for us. Mm, mm, Yes. Well, yes. I mean, unfortunately, you know, there are in New York, the protections, or not in New York, I'm sorry, in the U.S., the protections aren't great. We're on our way, hopefully. Can all workers join unions? How does that work? Yeah. So in the 30s, there was the National Labor Act, the National Labor Relations Act was passed. And really up until that point, you know, there were all kinds of worker abuses and, and that it was pretty revolutionary at the time. It was designed to address, you know, growing inequality and, and ensure really also to ensure that our economy could work properly and, and maximize its efficiency to put in productivity measures, but to also make it more of a fair, I guess, like a a compromise for both employers and employees. So that act stipulated that, you know, to the extent allowable, private sector employees can 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 unionize. Public sector employees cannot. However, you know, today we're we're where we have we've grown so much since the 1930s, which is almost a hundred years ago now, right? Oh there gosh, are right. I know, I know, and <laughs> but there are other um, sectors of, of of the employment industry that really are unprotected. You know, certainly we're seeing and hearing a lot about domestic workers, right? They they do not have the ability to unionize. I 
think that, well, at least for me, I feel encouraged. I'm a big supporter of the um, Build Back Better Act and the Infrastructure Reconciliation Bill, where mm -hmm. there will be funding for childcare. I'd like to see some of that incorporated there, where maybe we can start implementing some yeah. protections for domestic workers. Another area, we touched upon this a moment ago when we talked about, unfortunately, our undocumented population, many of them are farm workers, and they are not able to unionize. And you know, this is a group of people who really saved us during the pandemic, you know, totally. really, really were essential workers. And I mean, I think we need to do a lot more than just provide unionization rights or, you know, workers protections. I, I, I personally believe that essential workers should be allowed a path to citizenship, all essential workers mm. that, you know, really saved us. It's other countries have done this. This is not a radical idea, but so, you know, they, they are not allowed to unionize right now as well. So we have a long way to go, you know, certainly there's I mean, I guess if we're going to look at it glass half full, there's plenty of room for opportunity here. <laughs> right. 100 percent. Well, moving into, you know, this topic a little bit deeper, we want to talk about like some legislation as well. What is the PRO Act and what is its goal and how does this all kind of come in come into play here? Yeah. So, okay. So this, I'm trying to think about this in like an easy way to break it down. So we talked a moment ago about a National uh, Labor Relations Act, right? And, and that set the stage for initial labor laws. And unfortunately, there was the Taft-Hartley Act, which came a little bit later. And to me, it's a prime example of politicians bending to the will of, you know, the donor class or, you know, corporations at the expense of the will of their constituents. It's very unfortunate. But what Taft-Hartley did was really mitigate and undo a lot of the initial intent of the National Labor Relations Act. And it, it basically outlawed the ability to have certain kinds of strikes, certain kinds of boycotts. And there's this one particular element, which is just, it's just, it, it's such gaslighting on such a high level. So you're not allowed to essentially, if an employee goes on strike, they're not allowed to fire that employee, but what the Taft-Hartley Act allowed it to do was essentially, let's say I have a company, let's say you're my employees and you all go on strike because you unionize. I can replace you with two new employees. And then if let's say we um, come to some agreement, the strike is over and then you say, okay, I wanna come back to work. I'm like, oh, sorry, I have these new employees now. And you would have to wait until those employees decided to leave to be offered the job back. So while you're technically not fired, I mean, it's essentially- That's so you know, shady. What? That is so shady. Right, right. It's, it's, it's gaslighting, you know, on a, totally. on a completely, I mean, unfortunately, on a level that we're used to seeing these days, right? So the PRO Act would essentially undo that, those, those, comp those components, those pieces. It would strengthen the National um, Labor and Relations Act, which would be really important. It, it would do things like, and, and there's a whole like, you know, I mean, it's huge. There's so many exciting provisions, but, you know, just a few that I'll mention that I think are important. It'll redefine what an employee is. You know, we, we've come such a long way with technology and we have the gig economy and, you know, apps mm -hmm. have changed the game. So think about companies like Uber, right? Where they're technically gig workers. They're, so the way when, 
employment law is, I think, very complex and complicated. But essentially, if I'm a company and I have an employee, I'm required to offer you benefits and I'm required, you know, to, you know, offer you pay insurance and, and offer all kinds of different things for you. Workers rights. Right. But if I have if you are an independent contractor, I don't have to pay your benefits. I don't have to pay for disability. Mm -hmm. I don't have to pay for any of those things. So it costs a lot less for uh, an employer. Right. And so the evolution of these these types of technologies and the gig economy has made it very, very tricky and, and very hard to maintain a standard of living, which is why we see most people, or no, I should say most people, I don't know actually the stat, but many people working more than one job just to stay afloat, right? Mm -hmm. So the PRO Act would reclassify that so that companies like Uber would not be able to get away with that. And it would force them to treat these workers with dignity and pay them a living wage. Another piece of it, uh, another provision of the PRO Act would redefine the supervisor role. Oftentimes, the definitions are sometimes intentionally vague. And if you're a supervisor, you are not allowed to unionize as well. And oftentimes, they'll apply supervisor titles to roles that aren't really supervisors. So that would allow us to, you know, have more of a collective bargaining agreement with more workers as well. One of my favorite provisions, in addition to sort of repealing the elements of Taft-Hartley that we talked about, like that replacement with, you know, worker replacement, it allows us to strike. There is a provision that would allow undocumented people to not face the same repercussions as they face today. And they would be entitled to back pay, which is a, a huge huge, huge win for undocumented people because they are particularly vulnerable uh, because they face, you know, potential deportation and, and they have been historically taken advantage of. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of elements, but I think it would be, you know, it would be some of the most, certainly the most transformational labor law in our country, you know, probably more so than in the 1930s when the National Labor Relations Act took place. So right now it was passed in the House of Representatives. It awaits passage in the Senate. As you can imagine, there is a lot of pressure. Corporations are not happy. You know, they are, they're not having it. And, and there is a lot lot of pressure on politicians to either strip out pieces of it, which is unfortunately very common in order to find a compromise, they pull out all the good stuff. So we have to keep the pressure on and we have to fight because this is something that will really benefit all workers moving forward. And, you know, just especially as our economy is changing and you think about how the pandemic has changed work, right? Work as we know it, you know, totally. and, and I, I think we're going to continue to see um, more technology-based work. And unfortunately, since the 70s, you know, inequality has skyrocketed. There's also a huge correlation. It was around the same, basically at the, at the start of this, like skyrocketing inequality, unions started to lose their power. You know, union membership started to decrease. And we look at, you know, there are several possible reasons why, but one major reason was because we started to see the rise of these kind of anti-union, pro-corporate politicians. And, and they get together and there's a lot of money there, a lot of yeah. money. And they they spend it and there's, you know, tons of disinformation campaigns that go out and, you know, not only to the public, but also even within one's, you know, company. 
So yeah, it's, it's, it's a wild, wild system that we've got working for us. And, you know, what we do know is when we have a society that protects workers, when we have a society where unions are thriving and membership is high, inequality or the inequality gap is much, much smaller. I think it's, there's a stat, and I think it might even be more than this now, but the average CEO makes 320 times what a regular worker makes. And oh my gosh. I, I just can't, I, I can't imagine that, you know, it, any economist would look at that setup and say, oh, this makes sense. This is the system I want to be a part of, right? So, you know, we really have to work hard to fight for everyday people because what is starting to happen in our society is that we are so busy trying to live we're struggling to live you know and and i i'm seeing this for folks that make low wages middle class even upper middle class people are working six seven days a week they're working 60 70 hours a week and they're just paying the bills you know this this is not the way that we should be living 100 it's insane and i i think that's been like such the the grievance across like i can definitely say for like a lot of millennials like you're working longer and longer hours. You're more and more connected than ever, no matter what you're doing. There's no work-life balance and yet you're not being compensated. And like the common thing, this was like something I used to work in the design industry that like literally was like classic and be like, oh, we can like give you guys a ping pong table. Like that, like if you guys have a ping pong table, like it's it's fine. Like you guys will stay, you guys will work all weekend, right? It's like no like that's not what people want people want to be compensated properly for the work that they're doing the hours that they're doing and they also want to like have a right to like live their lives and right you know be able to do that at like you know an affordable rate and i think well, yeah and everything's so expensive so it's like yeah rent and living is expensive already and then you're not getting compensated the way you need to literally as i just get a notification on my computer for my amex bill <laughs> There we go. <laughs> I was like, why is this digging well, at me? So there you I go. Mean, that is what's unfortunate. You know, wages have stagnated and, you know, the system is structured in a way that favors the ultra wealthy over everyone else. And, and and this is the case certainly with worker rights, but even from a tax perspective, we see this, you know, it's everything is kind of, the deck is sort of stacked against working people. And we really need to turn that around. I think the PRO Act would be a huge step uh, in protecting all different types of workers. And again, it's not the be all end all, but it is a, a giant evolutionary step in the right direction. Yeah. Totally. Which I think leads to the next question to sort of round this out is like an ideal world, like what would you like to sort of see happen in this like labor rights movement kind of revival? Like what should be almost not obviously beyond the practice, like be fighting for me. Like this is, this is what needs to happen. Also yes. like post pandemic too. Like mm-hmm. what's like next? Yeah. I mean, I think this guy is the limit. I mean, there are certainly basic minimums that I think were important. You know, I, we, we're fighting for this $15 minimum wage across the country, but you know, um, 
Sammy, you're a New Yorker. I'm a New Yorker. And I can tell you that $15 is not a minimum wage in New York. And <laughs> and if you have a family, you know, it, that standard of living grows exponentially. So I, I really believe that we need a true living wage, you know, that that matches the geographic area. That is, that is something that we need a little more flexibility on. You know, working class people, like particularly where I live in New York, are getting crushed. They're absolutely getting crushed and wages are just not increasing. The fact that salaries are the same today as they were 20 years ago in many industries is just, well, so everything crazy. else skyrockets, including housing and food. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just untenable. It's an untenable situation. I just, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's wild. So that, that is certainly at the top of my list. I think there are other components that we've been fighting for for a really long time and it's just absurd that we don't have it so i'm a mom i have three children who i'm very blessed they are just the world's most amazing kids but you know paid leave was a real struggle mm -hmm. i was lucky in two of two jobs that actually no one job that i had i i was able to get some partial paid leave but in the others i was not able to get any and you know i'm a relatively young mother so mm -hmm. you know and, and things are starting to change in certain sectors a little bit, but we absolutely 100% need federal parental leave. It is mm. wild. We are one of the only industrialized countries that does not have paid parental leave. It is just, I mean, it's still mind blowing to me. And I'll just share like I, as a person who has had three children, I can tell you that I think the ability to both create life and, and birth life into this world is an extraordinarily magical experience and why those who are not able to create and birth life are not put on pedestals i don't know why <laughs> it is a it is something it is it is it is just a, a magical experience mm -hmm. and the fact that we don't honor that right uh, you know we literally create life and bring it into this world mm -hmm. and then we're just tossed aside and, and i think that is something that you know we should have addressed a very long time ago at a base minimum level paid sick leave is another we need federal paid sick leave you know those are things that i would absolutely love to see so i i work so it's funny that sammy you said oh a ping pong table you know <laughs> i spent uh, many years building health improvement strategies for organizations. And so sometimes we would do, you know, a ping pong table might be part of a uh, mental health strategy, right? To bring it down. It's not intended to make the worker, although so you're right that there are many companies that um, take advantage, but they're never in those types of, you know, interventions are never intended to make the employees stay for 15 hours, but, but sometimes they do. Yeah. I think because of the pandemic and the way it has really shifted this sort of flexible home arrangement, my hope, and it's something that I've advocated for for many, many, many years, is you know once we get the pandemic a little bit more under control that we can have unions fighting for flexible home arrangements i know like some of us have been home for so long we're itching to get back in the office but you know that will only last for so long to be able to do to have to have both options i think in today's world especially with like so many working parents it, it is I think it's going to be um, a huge yeah. indicator for success and productivity and happiness. Totally. So, you know, employee longevity. So those are on my short list. Mm -hmm. What about you both? I would love to hear from you what you think. 
Oh, geez. That's the first time we've had a guest ask us that. Appreciate it. I don't have an answer prepared, Sam. Do you know what yours would be? I mean, I think that flexibility element, like actually creating laws that work for people's lives that make sense Mm -hmm. is like so key. Like whether it's making sure that there is, you know, parental leave or there are hours set in the day where like you are able to go pick up your kids from school or there are, you know, there are set times that you are legally allowed to take doctor's appointments. Like I remember this for my old job, actually every job I've ever had where it was constantly like a struggle of like you could take a doctor's appointment, but it was a little like, you know, like you can, but you shouldn't. But it's like, okay, sorry, like there's only doctor's appointments like in the middle of the day, then there's no way you're getting one on a weekend and whatever. And you're like, okay, well, I'm either going to keep this job or I'm going to take this doctor's appointment. And like, I feel like there's so many of those questions that happen all the time where you're making these decisions that aren't good for your health, but they're good for like you staying at that job, right? Like the irony of that, this like sort of ramble is like, you have, you kept that job that you don't really like because you get health insurance, but then you can't use the health insurance because you're not allowed to really make a doctor's appointment without like being like slighted and not getting a raise because you weren't there for one hour during working hours during a lunch that you were legally supposed to have. So like, I just feel like there needs to be a better system in which like people are very distinctly and or in an organized fashion given like specific rights for during their working hours and how much they can actually take. And like some type of progress or process given to employers that ensures that it's actually provided and not creating this like sort of toxic culture where you can't actually take advantage of the things you're legally given. Right. And and so you bring to light, I think, an extremely important point, right, which is access to healthcare. You know, and I know that's a little bit of a um, going down a little bit of a different path than our previous discussion. But, you know, we look at the way we internalize and have always known what healthcare is, it it, it essentially chains us to our job. Right. Yeah. And, and mo- many of us are afraid to leave because, well, what if I get sick? And that, you know, that only gets worse as you get older. Right. And, and, you know, as we know, it, unfortunately, this is what happens to human beings. As we get older, you know, we tend to have some issues and, you know, maybe we need medication. We need to see certain doctors. But even for young folks, right, we need healthcare. We need preventive healthcare at the very least. Um, I believe strongly in a universal healthcare system that would allow us to you know, move more freely if, if the culture is bad or if it's not a good fit or, you know, it's not fulfilling, you know, your your life goals, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it, it would really spark a lot of innovation. And that is something that we don't talk enough about. And, and maybe it is something we should talk about in the context of workers' rights, because it is is one of the major, you know, major issues when we do talk about workers' rights and when we talk about unions in particular. You know, now we've moved the needle a little bit. Initially, unions were pretty against universal health care. And the reason is because for many, many years, unions have used health care as a negotiation um, you know, tool. And, and meaning that the wages have pretty much stayed stagnant in unions as well. But because the cost of health care always goes up, that's a given, by the way. Right? There are a few things you can count on in this life, but health care <laughs> getting more expensive every year, that's one of them. And what happens when health care gets more expensive, it means there's less money for employees, right? And it's not that your care is getting better. Better. Oftentimes, healthcare prices are going up, and they're having to carve out pieces of healthcare be, just to be able to afford it. You know, my feeling is even for 
for unions and, and my heart goes out to them. I know that they, uh, many, many union members have sacrificed wages to get good health care, but imagine what it could do for future generations to say, you know what, everybody gets health care in this country. We're one of the wealthiest countries in the world. We're the only industrialized country that does not offer health care. But now unions will be able to come to the table and actually ask for things like maybe a flexible work arrangement, maybe higher wages, you know, who knows, maybe that ping pong table. But, you know, I, I think it's a really important piece that we always treat health care as a side issue. But I, I think it's really integrated into all that we do. And I wish more people understood um, what it could mean, because I know that there's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of fear mongering out there. But the reality is, is that it would cost us all, almost all of us less. I think it's something like 97 percent of us in, in the country. It would cost us less and we'd have more choice and we'd have more care and we'd have more flexibility. So it's, you know, it's something I'd love for you to, you know, talk to your viewership about because it's it's really the future and we are really behind countries all over the world. Totally. We are. Yeah. Like playing catch up. And in totally. so many arenas, right? Uh, not just oh, with workers' so rights, with healthcare, with, you know, all of it. Yeah. It's I actually simple. have a question. And if you don't know the answer to this, I don't blame you because I actually don't even know if many scholars even know the answer Uh to this, but I just was thinking about, you know, we're talking about like wages and how important it is to to raise wages. But it just makes me think, too, about this kind of conversation that's happening right now, but like why people aren't going back to work and why there's so many places still like understaffed. And, you know, I've been to so many restaurants, be it in California or I was in Mississippi Mm -hmm. last week where you know, everywhere. It's like restaurants don't even have enough people working right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you have any theories as to why that is? Like, I think oh, yeah. there's probably a lot of people being like, I'm not even being paid enough. Plus, I'm going like and working in a pandemic when I could possibly get sick. Like, I, I just this constant conversation. I see articles about it all the time. And I feel like everyone's just theorizing. But like, there's not quite an answer yet. Do you have any oh, thoughts? Yeah. I, I, 100, I mean, as someone who's worked in the service industry, I mm-hmm. absolutely do, both as a non-unionized bartender and then as a unionized bartender. So I have a very interesting perspective on this. You know, I do think, depending where you're, where you're getting your media from, it's going to have a different take on mm-hmm. it, right? And I always like laugh at the flip side, which is, well, if you're paying starvation wages, and now you're asking people to risk their life, mm-hmm. who would go back to work? Who would do that? You right. know, I mean, the reality is, and most folks don't realize this, like when we talk about social safety nets, and I'm a big believer that the wealthiest country in the world should take care of its people, right? Let's say if you are making, a, let's say you make $50,000 a year, about $250 of your taxes essentially goes to like, you know, what we typically think of as a social safety net, you know, SNAP benefits, and you know that type of thing about six thousand of that goes toward corporate welfare and subsidizing companies right so we are subsidizing billionaires and somehow like demonizing people who who knows got a bad shake in life you know are struggling like when 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 did we decide that that's who we are as a country right Mm -hmm. so i think i think that's really important to to put that out there and and because i don't think that many people realize that we do subsidize corporate america and and you know particularly places like large corporations like walmart right it's the taxpayers that are subsidizing their workers because they're paying them starvation workers so we're subsidizing the corporations then we're subsidizing the the workers because they're not being paid a living wage so that that i mean i think that's a systemic issue that comes back to a true living wage but i can tell you 
when you are in the service industry and you're working on tips, it's a very unreliable, you know, income. Some, Mm -hmm. some days you do okay. Some days you don't, then you have to fill out your taxes. And by the time you essentially are making peanuts, you know, and I just, I personally, I think, I think the pandemic for, I mean, listen, it, it, it has been eye-opening on so many fronts and it's been so horrific and so painful and really has exposed the deep fissures in our society. I do also think that maybe it's an opportunity for us to hit a reset button Mm -hmm. and examine what what has been working and what hasn't been working. And I think for a lot of working people, we're starting to hit a wall here where we can't push anymore. We can't possibly be this more more productive, right? And and, and not advance, right? And not be able to save money for our children to go to college, not be able to, you know, pay the bills or whatever it is. I I, I do think that there is a societal kind of reawakening on, well, making $3 an hour with maybe the potential for some tips is not worth my life. Totally. Um, Or then working your like second, third job to then put food on the table for your family, then you're exposing yourself even more to potentially getting sick. And then you don't have proper health care, probably. It's just a whole... And you're exposing your family. I think I think COVID has been, you know, it it, it really has caused us all to reevaluate and yeah. rethink, you know, our position and, and and what we are. And I think, you know, the true answer is not, oh, these people don't want to work. I think it's that you know people can't work for starvation wages. And I don't think we should be putting people in situations where their lives are at risk. Uh, and I know I mentioned this earlier, but you know. I think about my community, right? We, so many folks organize money drives and food drives, and they brought food to the hospital for hospital workers because they were certainly heroes and they're still Mm -hmm. heroes as they're fighting the pandemic. And that was so well-deserved. But what did we do for the cashiers at the grocery stores? Yeah. Who, who are not getting paid as much as, you know, doctors and certain, and most hospital workers, Right. right? If not all. And they were risking their lives and they were there every day. And, and we know we've heard the horror stories where managers weren't even giving them PPE. And, you know, what, what do we expect? And, and what, are we, what have we given them in return? You know, yeah. we, we haven't given them much. And, and, and I don't know what, it, to me, I, I feel like we should show some more gratitude and pay yeah. people a living wage and make sure that people are safe. And if they're not, you know what, then we can expect, unfortunately, you know, restaurants to close. Those are tough businesses. You know, it's tough to make a profit, but we do have to figure out a model in which we are paying people enough to survive. Totally. And all the like arguments against all of it is really just like the corporations being like yep keep arguing that we're just gonna sit back and like keep taking out everyone's money and let everyone else just starve and whatever it's well, just... and, and you'll see this there's a pushback right in every major social movement social issue that will uplift people there is generally a major pushback right so we just saw this a few weeks ago uh there was a bill that was being voted on in a committee to lower prescription drugs Sounds like a good idea, right? Lower prescription drugs, who doesn't want that? Our prescription drugs are astronomical compared to Canada, compared to Mexico, compared to Europe, astronomical. Mm -hmm. And we saw big pharma flood campaigns. And we even had Democrats who typically fight for better health care and lower, or they say they fight for lower prescription drugs. They voted no. And how else can you explain that? And we saw even on TV, there were TV ads 
you know, trying to spin it, telling folks like making up lies that there would be less innovation. There's not going to be less innovation because you yeah. know what funds innovation for pharmaceuticals? Taxpayer money. Yeah. So that's not, that's a lie. No, you know? all those political talking points that we hear on Fox News or CNN or just everything that they spew for us to then argue with each other about, it's literally all just coming from the corporation so that they can keep hiding behind their curtain. And when we talk about healthcare too, you know, for a long time I couldn't understand why we didn't have more support from industry because it would be it would cost them less money to to administer healthcare in a universal healthcare system than it would in our current system. But what I realized is that it also would allow employee employees to move more freely, right? Across industry and to mm. different competitors if we all had healthcare it wouldn't be cementing us to one job so yeah that's true you know there's a lot of ulterior motives and i think oftentimes unfortunately it's not always in the best interest of the majority of people and sadly we see that a lot from our politicians too now thankfully we've got a lot of great ones right but we yeah. need to work to elect more yeah, it runs so deep, but this has been eye-opening in so many ways. I think it was a great deep dive into this topic that we haven't really fully dove into before. So thank you for shedding light on all of this. It's been amazing. Yes, and before you. before you go, can you kind of give everyone all the information on your campaign, where they can find you, where they can support you? Yes, yes. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. I am, so my website is dorigo2022.com. That's D-A-R-R-I-G-O. 2022.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Dorigo Melanie. So Dorigo spelled the same way, M-E-L-A-N-I-E. And I'm Dorigo for Congress on Instagram and Facebook. And we're accessible by certainly by the website, but also on social media. So feel free to join our campaign. We're always looking for volunteers. If you can make a contribution, it's immensely helpful. Every dollar goes toward getting out our message and building our voter outreach program because we are 100% grassroots. Amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on. We are so excited about your campaign and can't wait to see where it all goes. Me too. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Well, it is time for some top stories. And this one was top of the list for us to cover. So okay, the stories. So exclusive breaking story from Rolling Stone. And it is titled January 6th, protest organizers say they participated in dozens of planning meetings with members of Congress and White House staff. So interesting that they call it protest, but whatever, this little insurrection. So basically it was the House investigation into this January 6th situation gets feisty. It's getting heating up. It's hotter than the fire that is behind me as I speak. And some of the planners, the peeps in the camp of the pro-Trump rallies that took place in D.C. have begun to chit-chat with congressional investigators and have shared the new info, new deets about what happened when good old Trumpy Trump supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol. So two of these people, which are discussed in this article, have spoken to Rolling Stone exclusively in recent weeks and have detailed some pretty like explosive and insane allegations I mean, they're not really insane because it's kind of like a duh moment, at least for anyone that believes that this was an insurrection. But point being is they're speaking. So they say that multiple members of Congress were intimately involved in planning both Trump's efforts to overturn his election laws and all of the January 6th events that turned violent. 
I would also like to say that Rolling Stone claims that they have confirmed a third person that's involved in the situation and is communicating with the committee. And this is the first report that the committee is hearing about these allegations. Yes. And the two sources, both of whom have been granted anonymous status due to the ongoing investigation, describe participating in dozens of planning briefings ahead of that day when Trump supporters broke into the Capitol as his election loss to President Joe Biden was being certified. And the organizer said, I remember Marjorie Taylor Greene specifically, the organizer, the organizer says, I remember talking to probably close to a dozen other members at one point or another or their staffs. So mm-hmm. these two sources also helped plan a series of demonstrations that took place in multiple states around the country. So this was in the weeks between the election and storming the Capitol. Like they got the whole freaking calendar booked. OK, like the whole thing. So according to these sources, multiple people associated with the March for Trump and Stop the Steal events took place during the period of time that we just talked about with members of Congress throughout this process, along with Green, which is like, obviously, if you've heard, if you've listened to any other Conspiracy theory queen. Like, absolute. So we've got like some other peeps in the room on this. So other members who participate in these conversations or had like top staff, which is basically the same thing. Uh, Rep. Paul Gozer, and I might be pronouncing that wrong. So if I am, someone tell me. But anyways, he is a little scary looking and he's from Arizona, Republican. Uh, Warren Bobart from Colorado, so Mo Brooks from Alabama, Madison Cawthorn from North Carolina, Andy Biggs from Arizona. Guys, Arizona, get it together, my God, and Louis Gomart from Texas. What a crew. What What a a motley crew. crew. What a motley crew. It is literally like, you know, one of those spoof movies that's like talking about like just like a a band of really dumb robbers. Mm, Like that, that's what that is. is the motley crew. 100%. And Rep. Paul Gosar, who we don't for sure know how to say his name, but here we are, who has been one of the most prominent defenders of the January 6th rioters, allegedly took things a step further. Both sources says he dangled the possibility of a blanket pardon in an unrelated ongoing investigation to encourage them to plan the protest. So what I'm reading here is that he was egging on these rioters and saying, oh, we'll pardon you if anything goes wrong. Mm -hmm. Is that... Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. That's what, that's what it is. Yep. So another quote, our impression was that it was a done deal. The organizer says that he'd spoke, that he'd spoken to the president about it in the Oval Office in a meeting about pardons and, and that our names came up. They were working on submitting the paperwork and getting members of the House Freedom Caucus to sign on as a show of support. And the organizer claims the pair received several assurances about the blanket pardon from Rep. Paul Gosar. This is wild. I just also like all the offense made towards these organizers, as much as I'm like happy to get this info. Like, like you really thought you were getting a pardon? Are you dumb? Have you not seen, like, just looking at like any of Trump's like business feelings, how many people he's screwed that way, right? Like, and not being able to carry through. You think he cares about two little like ants of organizers? But his supporters like just don't think that about they don't. him. No, not they at like all. think Which, he's actually sent from God. So I just yeah. it's culty. It's like that culty. It's culty. And there's actually like a really funny like Daily Mail. Oh no, not Daily Mail. Whoa, the Daily Show hold up meme <laughs> about that. And I will have to share it on our feed because it is fucking hilarious. But it like totally points to the cult thing and it is a cult 
But outside of that, in terms of some of like the the hard evidence, the paper evidence, the trail, that all Rolling Stone has also obtained some of that. And both sources are seen, you know, through this evidence that they were in contact with Gosar and Bobar all on January 6th. So basically it's out there. Like there is a paper trail. Like, I don't know, guys, have we not learned to delete the receipts? Like not that I'm like saying make a crime, do a crime, whatever, like here's how to do it by no means, but like dumb shit, like dumb shit. Like, I mean, at least we I think know they just can't genuinely thought they were in the right. That's okay. That's fair that, point. This is true. I just, yeah, this, this whole crew, whether they're the actual electeds in office or the base slash writers, like they all thought that they were literally saving our country. And this was like a mission from God. Like it's crazy. It's crazy. And Trump was just taking advantage of it. He like knew he had all these people in the palm of his hand and he's like, they'll do whatever I want them to do. They'll think whatever I want them to think. And that's just the reality of the last four years, which is crazy to think back on. But so while both of these sources say their communications with the House's January 6th committee thus far have been informal, they are expecting to testify publicly. And both of the sources made clear that they still believe in Trump's agenda. They also have questions about how his election loss occurred. The two sources say they do not necessarily believe they there were issues with the actual vote count. However, they are concerned that Democrats gained an unfair advantage in the race due to perceived social media censorship of Trump allies and the voting rules that were implemented as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. So Mm. Trump being removed from Twitter for inciting violence. They're like, why? What? And then they also are like, wait, why? Why do people have to vote by mail during a pandemic? That's not fair. What? The whole thing just, uh, <laughs> just I, like, no the comment. amount of no comment. And I just, I one of these days, there's gonna be less of me saying this. I hope, but I just, this is the type of shit that makes me want to go put my head in a blender. Mm-hmm. But now that yeah. my head's a smoothie, despite these bozos having this like remaining like hashtag love for Trump and their questions about the vote. Both sources say they are motivated to come forward because of their concerns about how the pro-Trump protests against the election ultimately resulted in violence. But like, here's like the kicker and they like point this out and it is like so true is like, there are also other legal issues and the House investigation, both of these sources have like a clear motivation to cooperate with investigators and turn on their former allies. Be- allies. Oh my God, guys, help me. Allies, allies. And like, obviously, like, I mean, first of all, these people wouldn't make it in the mob one day, exhibit A, don't go to New Jersey. Obviously, you're going to turn your, you don't want jail time, you want fines, you want da 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 like, even if you still believe X, like, I mean, the alternative is not looking so great, not so hot for these guys. So let's talk about this kind of story. Funny story, background story for the story. We found it about to, I was at a diner on Sunday morning for breakfast. And I was waiting for my table and they had newspapers there. And I opened the newspaper. Can't tell you the last time I touched one. And I was just reading through and, you know, there's a little political section. And I saw this headline and it said Biden to outline filibuster changes in weeks. And my ears perked up. I was super giddy and excited and it made my Sunday because the idea of changes to the filibuster possibly happening soon is just enough to make my entire day. So I got very excited about that, took a picture and I said, we need to talk about this on the episode this week. So <laughs> let's get into it. Basically, the White House stated on Friday that President Biden would speak in the coming weeks about fundamentally altering the filibuster or to even eliminate it. 
I'm getting. And just a reminder, you guys, the definition of a filibuster is loosely defined term for the action designed to prolong debate and delay or even prevent a vote on a bill, resolution, or amendment or other debatable question in the Senate. So that's that on that. That's why we can't pass anything in the Senate because this threat of the filibuster is looming always in the Senate. So big deal here. Big deal. Big big deal. So basically from the White House, the White House press room, they've been like, stay tuned, like basically using my like number one email, like sign off situation to kind of hold back on this, which is really just freaking annoying. Cause like guys, like we need to get some stuff done, but say la vie. And in the past, AK as of until recently, President Biden stated that he was supportive of requiring that lawmakers hold the Senate floor to sustain a filibuster, aka not get rid of it. But Thursday, well, Thursday, 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 he suggested he could support eliminating it entirely for some issues, which is very interesting to all of us. And in a CNN town hall, he said that if Republicans refuse to provide the votes necessary to raise the debt limit, as they threatened last month before backing down on the even potential government default, he said, I think you'll see an awful lot of Democrats being ready to say, not me, I'm not doing that not doing that again, we're going to end the filibuster. I mean, I don't know what Joe Manchin really thinks of that, but like, okay, Biden, okay. I don't know what strings you pulling, but yeah, fine. Well, now like the whole debt limit conversation, that's a little bit more recent, definitely put some fire under Biden's ass to consider making some changes to the filibuster. But voting rights is another big thing here because we have that big voting rights bill that is basically doomed if the filibuster exists, honestly. But voting rights is so essential and Biden believes that. And so that's another thing that's kind of pushing him to consider making these changes and potentially eliminating filibuster. So Biden said voting rights is equally as consequential, suggesting he would be open to filibuster changes to pass the long-stalled democratic legislation, as well as maybe more on unspecified issues. And Jen Psaki also said we are at an inflection point on a range of issues and that not getting voting rights done is not an option. I think the president will have more to say about this in the, in the coming weeks. So again, voting rights, big, big moment here on the filibuster as well. Yeah. And so Biden saying he did not move sooner to support these changes as he wanted to avoid Senate moderates whose votes he needed to pass the multi-trillion dollar domestic spending bills, which are still not moving at all. So L O fucking L. And honestly, like moderates at this point just really come down to two people, which is so bloody ridiculous, but like whatever. So Biden also like gave this little, little moan, this little quote. So what, what it's done is prevented me from getting deeply up to my ears, which I'm going to do once this is done and dealing with police brutality, dealing with the whole notion of what are you going to do about voting rights, Biden said. It's the greatest assault on voting rights in the history of the United States real since the civil war. Honestly, what I really took away from this quote is that Biden says for real. I know I I was thinking the same thing. Like, yeah, 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 but for real. Like, what? Yeah, like, for real, Biden. Some, like, 90s, like, skater boy vibe. He's, it's almost his birthday. On November 20th, he turned 79. Okay. Ladies, gents, folks of the world. He's very close. Um, yeah. He's a Scorpio, too, which, by the way, just as we, like, wrap things up, we have started a new series on IG, which shares... Some top politicians per astrological sign and top not being like, oh, we think like, oh, they're so great or we like support them or anything like that. They just happen to really be that sign. And obviously they have certain personality traits that we see 
in the media and what they vote on and all that. And we're just always, we're so curious if it like matches up to like our perception of that. So each month or not each month, each season. So right now we're in Scorpio. We have that pop up and you guys get to vote on whether that politician is totally that sign or not. So if you missed it, go see who's a a Scorpio. But in the meantime, rate, review, share with a friend, cousin's friend, friend's friend's cousin. I mean, whoever it is under the sun, if you think they would be down for the show, please, please, please share them. And last but not least, obviously follow us on social. Maybe by next week, I will remember how to speak because I clearly can't light up my mouth and my brain right now. But that's that's pretty much the deal. That's pretty much it. So look out for merch next week. Super excited. They're super fucking cute. Sam's wearing one right now. Mine just decided to not come yet. So I'm still waiting for mine. But we'll be posting pictures. We'll be showing everything and launching next week. So stay tuned. Sign up for our brand ambassador program if you're not already. Um, We'd love to meet you. And like, subscribe, review, follow on Instagram, TikTok. I think that's it. But thank you for listening, and we will be talking to you all next week. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.